0: If you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 4, I want you to keep Matthew 16 in your mind. Ephesians chapter 4. And if anyone would like a booklet to take notes, we have those available up here. If you want to just raise your hand, we can give you one of those. Anybody? Anybody need to take notes of booklet? Yes? No? We're good? Okay. Okay. Oh, we got one back there. We started a new sermon series a few weeks ago dealing with the gifts in the body. There's a lot we need to understand about the body so that we can properly place spiritual gifts. We've seen that the opportunity for the Jews to accept their promised Messiah has been rejected and the way that that happened was the Pharisees declared that the miracles that he did in healing people, the works of the Holy Spirit that radiated through him as the Christ were actually to be credited to Satan. And that's an incredibly blasphemous claim for knowledgeable and in-charge people to make. And from that moment on, Jesus' entire ministry changed. He began speaking about his betrayal, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The apostles couldn't even fathom what he was talking about. Where was he going? If you remember, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. That had to be a fun conversation. In fact, it happened not too long after his confession of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We also found that because of the massive amount of grace that we've been given, the fire hose, that we find that we're called to live a life that seeks to balance out the grace that we've been given. And so this is why we have in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, this turning point. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. There's the scale term there. Balancing the scales of the calling with which you have been called. Now, he, remember this, guys. He wouldn't call us to do this if we couldn't do it. And the only way that we can do it is because we are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit to be the power to do it through us. Just as the works of the Spirit radiated through Christ, the works of the Spirit also can radiate through us as we are submissive to Him. But it's got to be His power, not ours. Verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, the body being the church, the one new man in Christ, the Spirit being the Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, that's Spirit baptism, not water baptism, Verse 6: One God and Father of all who is over all because he's the creator, and through all, and in all. So, the ultimate point that we find that Paul is wanting for us to understand is because supernatural oneness in Christ is a reality, an already done situation, he is now calling on us to have our earthly physical gathering of oneness to match the same. Jesus has already locked it up and got it done. So he's saying, in your pilgrimage on earth, seek to emulate that oneness. Strive for that. Take upon yourself these supernatural abilities. How many people would agree that humility is a supernatural ability? All you got to do is drive and not take matters into your own hands. I need to be humble here. Lord, I'm submitting myself to you. I am dead in sin. I'm alive in Christ. We've got to get our minds renewed with what the truth says. Otherwise, we're hitting fools all the time. Taking names, not caring. You oughta. you don't know. White knuckling everything in our lives. That's what a life that's not submissive to the Spirit looks like. So to have an alternative to how we are naturally ingrained, that we're just products of our environment, that type of language they want to put us on, we find out that we need supernatural working in our lives and it's not about us doing something to pull the trigger so that it happens. It's about us giving up our rights and saying, God, use this body for your glory. It's going to be redeemed. You've redeemed my spirit. I'm in the process of being saved right now. I need more of the Word to teach me how to think according to the truth. Help! And that's when Christ uses us in huge ways. One of the greatest problems we've had in the past 100 to 150 years is that a lot of our Christianity has become individually focused. Everybody does Bible studies in order to help their spiritual growth. Is that a bad thing? No. But if we think that the Bible study has ended in ourselves, and that it's not meant to go past us in order to affect and encourage the body of Christ around us, we have missed the mark completely. Completely. Everything in a believer's life is meant for the edification of others. Always. And that's why all these supernatural abilities are relational. Humility. If Nobody else is around. Is it hard for you to have humility? There's no need for it. Gentleness? There's no need for it. Why? Because you're perfectly content with you and I'm content with me but it's when we hang out that we have to check ourselves and we have to be submissive to the Spirit. Then he calls for this oneness to come together. It's all about one, one, one. As the Trinity is one, so the body of Christ is one. And then he steps into this realm in verse 7 where he wants to break apart that oneness. Not because it is broken apart, but because he wants to tell us something about each one. One of us and the privileges that he has. Look what verse 7 says. But to each one of us. Everybody see the word us? Notice that Paul includes himself. This isn't some special ability that only Paul had and no one else did. He's including himself with the body of Christ. To each one of us individually. Now watch this because no one's excluded. If you come here today and you think of yourself as a second or third class Christian, Understand that that is straight from the enemy. That is not from God. Everyone has equal footing at the cross. We may have been called to different things, but no one has a better or more righteous standing than another before Jesus Christ. If we have believed, we are in Him, and there are not in Him levels in Christ. We're all one, and we're all equals. Now, we're called to unity, but not uniformity. There is great diversity in the body of Christ. And as we start creeping into this subject of spiritual gifts and begin to see that it starts with offices that have been given to the church, we need to understand how we relate in that manner. So he says to each one of us individually, within this unity individually, grace was given. Now we would easily think, well he's talking about saving grace. He's talking about justification. He's talking about go to heaven when you die. He's talking about undeserved favor that's been given to believers in Christ because no one deserves it and therefore Jesus graciously offers us salvation. Well, that's how we often think of it. The context points us in a different direction. He's talking about the action of the body, the attitudes of the body. The context is, what does it look like to walk worthy of a monument of grace that's been established in the cross? What does that look like? Well, grace has been given to each one of us. Now watch this. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I automatically think of my two tablespoon coffee scooper that I love so dearly. How do you measure what the grace looks like that's been given? It's interesting because this grace is derived of the word Charisma. If you're familiar with the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S is how we view it in English. We're dealing with that word of grace. And we understand it in the New Testament. So what this is talking about is certain endowments have been given to the church because of what Jesus has done. And what's interesting is, is the Spirit has measured this out for each one of us. Let me give you an example. PJ, if we could bring up 1 Corinthians 12. That verse reference there, it's a couple down. But take a look at this. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down, you'll want to take notes today. We're going to cover a lot. But one and the same Spirit, stop. Does that sound familiar to what we just read before in Ephesians? One Spirit works all of these things, talking about different spiritual gifts that He hands out, distributing to each one individually, so the individual parts of the greater unity of the whole of the body of Christ, just as He wills. In other words, when the Spirit is looking to distribute spiritual gifts for the edification of the body, He is doing so because the Spirit knows us better than we do. The Spirit knows how you will be best used in the body of Christ better than you do. This is why the whole idea of, well, what would you like to do for the Lord? It really doesn't capture the question that needs to be asked. It's got good intentions. It wants to give you the opportunity and the freedom to exercise that type of question or the answer to that. But what you really find out is, is to be patient and waiting on how the Spirit has made you or geared you or graced you, endowed you with the opportunity to be able to serve in the body of Christ. And this is when we find that a lot of the friction that comes with serving and usually the eye roll and the... Uh, that goes with it when we talk about serving in the church, the sighing goes out the window because people find joy in what they do. Anybody think that the Spirit wants to send us out into the battlefield and be like, you know what, you're going to hate every minute of this. Way to go. We have got to get rid of this grin and bear it idea of what it is to serve in the church. If our idea of coming and serving in the church is grinning and bearing it, we've missed the boat completely. We're not serving as the Spirit has geared us. Now the problem is the way we react to that is we withdraw. Well, I'm not going to serve at all. Well, I'm only going to serve in this way. I'm only going to serve in how I want to or, dare I say it, I'm only going to serve as my schedule allows that tells me that your schedule's not submitted to Christ at all. That's like the person who's going to give. Well, you know, I'm going to pay all my bills and go have my fun and do all my things and ride all the water slides of Kalahari. And then if I got something left over, I'll help God out. It's like when you say you're going to have the church yard sale and the people bring the stuff that they've been wanting to haul to the junkyard for years. You guys know what I'm talking about. The tricycle with no wheels, somehow the church is supposed to sell that for God's glory. Don't play, I've seen it, okay? There's something about an attitude adjustment and a proper understanding of the church that is cathartic in those manners. And this situation is much deeper than what we realize. Each one of us has been given a grace, an endowment, and the Spirit is the one who decides what you get and how much of it you get. This is why the warm body syndrome in Sunday school, well, we don't have anybody and you have a pulse. Why don't you fill in? That doesn't work. At the same time, there's no reason why we should be begging people to serve. I believe that if each local church is a representation of the body of Christ and He is the head and we're subservient to Him because we worship Him as our Christ and our Savior and our Lord, then what you find is is that people have no problem serving because God is not going to shortchange the local body and the ministries that need to be dispelled. It's not going to happen. Christ is not going to say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to put the spirit of obstinance in some people, and that's how it's going to play out. No, that's just called disobedience and sin. It needs to be confessed and repented of. God has not set his church up for failure. He died to make it victorious because he is victorious. So until our thinking and our hearts come in line with that, we will be far off base and we will be begging for people to serve and we will be wondering why certain things won't kind of happen. That's an individual heart issues, but here's the thing. It's not that God failed to supply us with the arsenal that we need to get the job done. He supplied every one of us richly as he wills. Now, if you go back to our Ephesians passage, and you look at verse 7, it's this idea according to the measure of Christ's gift. What in the world is Christ's gift? We would have a lot of guesses, some educated and some not, that we would bring up. But what we're talking about here is the idea of what it is to walk in a worthy way. And one thing that we know is the flesh is not going to get it accomplished. It's going to be an understanding of the grace that's been given to us. And it's going to be the idea of wanting to be used by God in order to make this happen. And I believe what this gift is, is the gift of the Spirit. PJ, if you would, go to John 14. If you want to write this down. I'm not going to have you flip there. It'll take us a long time to get all this. But if you remember, Jesus said these words to the eleven. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, a helper like himself, that he may be with you forever. How long do you have the Spirit? Forever. And every believer in Christ has it. That is the Spirit of what? Truth. It means he will never lead you into error. Never. He'll never have you doing the wrong thing. This is why it's important that we be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And I know that sounds spooky and charismatic and weird, but it's biblical. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. Now think about where they're at chronologically. He hasn't died yet. You have seen him. Has Jesus been doing works before their eyes? All of those things are are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But notice we said. He abides with you. The word means remains with you. He is present here As a force with you, not as a force, as a person. You guys get what I mean. But he's here. But notice what he says after that. And will be, future tense, everybody see it, in you. When does that happen? Acts 2, the birth of the church. So notice, Jesus is forecasting, I'm leaving. And I'm going to ask my Father. And my Father's going to send the Spirit. And he's a helper. And he will never leave you. And right now, you've seen evidence of him here. The world doesn't get it, but you get it. And not only that, but after this, when the Spirit comes, he will then reside in you, not just around you. He's actually going to take up residence within you. PJ, let's go to the next one in John. John 16, verse 7. Look at this. But I tell you the truth. Thank you, Jesus, right? It is to your advantage that I go away. Now stop for a second. The 11 didn't believe that. That's probably why he had to say, I tell you the truth. I'm going to go away. You know all of them were looking at each other like, no. It's to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the gift that Christ has given to the church is the Spirit. He asked the Father to send the Spirit. Because when we talk about spiritual gifts, where do they come from? The Spirit, because He gives to each one individually as He wills. The Spirit knows. The Spirit is the orchestrator of these things. The Spirit is watching over and the discerner of the church. Now think about this. If Jesus would have stayed, but I don't want Jesus to go. If Jesus would have stayed, there's only one of Him. He's hanging out with 11 guys. How many people does the Holy Spirit indwell? Every believer in Christ. See, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He's looking to get more accomplished because the Spirit is able to indwell every believer. Now, let's go back to our Ephesians passage. Verse 8, Therefore, now I pause, pregnantly. Thank you, Jim Brandt. You get a note-taking booklet. What is that there for? Now watch this. Because of what he's just said about Christ's gift and every believer having the measure of grace or the endowment of grace, therefore it says, now he's going to quote the Old Testament and he's going to Psalm 68. We're going to look at that in just a second. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Everybody got your seatbelts on? Let's read it one more time. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Turn with me to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a victory psalm. In quoting this psalm, Paul is not interpreting it. Paul is taking this psalm, this passage, and he is applying it to the situation of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. So if you were to start in Psalm 68, just look at your Bibles with me real quick. Look at verse 1. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. that sound pretty powerful? Yeah, sounds like God showed up to do some business. He's there to clean some house. He's there to reckon. He's there to call people to their personal responsibility of what it was to respond and be subservient to Him. If you notice down in verse 3, but let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yahweh and exalt before him Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing in order to be. He is, and all things exist because of him. That's what the name Yahweh means. It is powerful, and it is personal. So this is a huge declaration that's going on here. Now, we could spend weeks in this psalm, but I want you to turn over to 68, verse 15, because this is where we really find a lot of the interesting things taking place. Verse 15. Now remember, anytime that you see G-O-D, capital G, lowercase O-D, you are dealing with the word Elohim. And it's exactly how God describes His name in, in Genesis 1. Now Elohim is a generic term. That is not a downplay of the person of who God is. But depending on context, it could be used in order to describe Celestial forces that are not the creator. Okay? So it can be used interchangeably. Context determines the meaning. In these instances, I don't think anything's been translated weird at all, but I want you to know that to watch what goes on. So that when I say the word Elohim, you don't think that I started speaking in tongues. Verse 15. A mountain of Elohim is the mountain of Bashan. Everybody see Bashan? Mark it. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of. Bashan. Now let's stop there. Bashan has an incredible history in the Bible. If you were to do a word study and just study it out, you'll find out that Bashan was one of the areas, the territories that were conquered whenever the children of Israel, second generation, were coming out of the Exodus. If you remember, the first generation was liberated from Egypt. They came out. God said, hey, go over and take the promised land. It was an 11-day journey from Egypt to where they needed to be. And he said, we're going to take the promised land. They said, let us send spies and see what's going on. He said, great, do it. Send 12 guys. They came back. Two of them were Joshua and Caleb. The 10 spies got scared because, does anybody know why? Giants. Stop. Do we really believe that? We believe there are giants in that land. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they recorded the bed of one of them that they took as a trophy. 13 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Now, that's not a king size bed, man. That's a huge size bed. That's a, if you ever go to bed place sometime and ask them, I want a giant size bed. And then tell them what the dimensions are. They'll look at you like you're crazy. But guess what? Israel took one as proof of what they had done. Because you had a group of people known as the Rephaim, who were also connected to a group of people called the Anakim, who were also connected to a people that you're probably more familiar with called the Nephilim. Everybody familiar with that? And these are people that are giants. These are degrees of people or or sections of people that were known as giants at this time. Now, if you don't think this is true, Kathy, where are you at? Kathy, where are you at? There you are. In the back, right there. When we started our Deuteronomy study three years ago, Catherine was able to search the internet and find fossils of human skeletons that were 13 feet tall, still lodged in rocks. How come I've never heard of this? Because you're searching for something else on the internet. Look for that. But slide over and over and over. It seems incredible to us because we've been conditioned. It's not incredible to God. It's part of what history used to be like. And so when we talk about Bashan, Bashan had a king named Og. Og's bed is who they stole after they killed him. But when they came in, the second generation, the first generation got spooked because of giants. And so what ended up being an 11-day journey actually ended up being a 40-year and 11-day journey, talk about the divine discipline of the Lord, in order to discipline them and that generation died and passed off the scene so that their children would rise up and finally be obedient to go in because God was going to take the land before them. It was all about trusting him to lead the charge. And so when they come into this land, before they cross over what's now known as the Jordan River, they take up. This eastern side, and they come across a guy named Sihon of the Amorites. They say, hey, let us pass. He says, no, we're going to beat you. And they say, no, God's going to beat you. And God beats them, and they take all of the stuff. And then they come into this next part, and it's Og. And Og, hey, can we pass through here? No, we're actually going to kill you and take all your stuff. No, actually, God's going to kill you, and we're going to take all your stuff. Now, that was a big deal because Og of Bashan had 160 miles from south to north of property. It wasn't just like, once, hey guys, we took Partyville. No. It was a massive stretch of land. And they dominated it because they obeyed the Lord. They walked forward in courage without fear. And the Lord fought for them and delivered it into their hands. Now, there's a lot of ramifications that go with this because when you go into the top of this area, you find that there is a little place called Dan where the tribe of Dan settled and there was a city there. In fact, PJ, if you wouldn't mind, let's bring up the first map that I have. If you notice this map here, Dan is located right here. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. Down here is the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea that you deal with. Jerusalem's over here in this area. Right up here, the Sea of Galilee. And this water flows up and right in here is where Dan was located. Now, what's interesting is, is the capital cities that were going on in the region of Bashan at this time are Ashtaroth and Edri. Now, does anybody have anything that rings familiar in their ears when I say the word Ashtaroth? Anything? Somebody raise your hand. Let's, let's do it a little bit coordinated here. What do we think, Jerry? Exactly. They would erect these poles all throughout the land that were known as Ashtoreth poles. And they were dirty, creepy, gross, vulgar, nasty, and always had something to do with perverting sex. All the time. Most cults do. And so all of this region, in fact, the region that they took was down here all the way up into here. God gave all of this area here to them. Ashtaroth, Edri, their capitals, were all known for pagan worship. Now, hopefully we know enough about the Bible to understand that idols aren't simply stone carvings and wood carvings that people would bow down to and give their Cheerios to. That's not who it is. Idols are actually manifestations of real demonic Beings who have made themselves known, who are trying to influence society, who are trying to lead people astray, who are trying to get them all twisted up. These are the beings that have been given control of the world, except for this section right here. This belongs to God. All this belongs to God Himself. He is the Creator. They are created beings, regardless of the fact that they're rebellious. So all of these situations right here were set up for pagan worship. All of it. Now what's interesting is, is we're talking about the mountain of Bashan. Now for us, we might say, what in the world is he talking about? Knowing that we can read these things well. Mitch, can we turn these out? Knowing that we we can read these things well. Hopefully you see a little mountain area right here. We see this? PJ, can we go to the next map? Focus in on that? Everybody see this mountain region here? Right here is where Dan is located at. This mountain region right here. It's a little place right here called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the Mount of Bashan. What's interesting about it is it is the tallest mountain in that region. It's got many peaks. And so the interchange that's going on here about a victorious God in 68 that Paul quotes in Ephesians because he wants to communicate something to us is the mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. That's a huge claim because this is run by pagan forces. Let me tell you how bad it was. Number one, the chief god in that time was Molech. Anybody heard of Molech before? Molech usually is depicted as a large owl who has his hands out like this, and the reason is is because when you come to worship Molech, that's where you set your children before you kill them. He's a god of child sacrifice. So anytime that you hear that the abortion industry is run by a god called Molech, don't just dismiss that as some crazy fanaticism that somebody's got some kind of weird disorder they haven't been diagnosed with. Understand that there are spiritual forces behind the murder of generations that's going on. It's demonically influenced. Let's not be stupid. This is exactly what Satan wants, is for us to remain in ignorance and go on about our hallmark Christianity like nothing's wrong. It's not. Spiritual forces are against society to try to bring it down. So the chief god was Molech. He's all, it's interesting, if you look at some of the ancient texts, they also invoke his name in snake charms. Now, we all know that snakes are evil, right? We know that, right? Yes, house of Slytherin, down, no, nothing to do with it. Bashan came to be associated with the underworld. Or any time that you're reading through the Psalms and you see it, and you come across the idea of Hades? It's talking about hell. Hell is not the lake of fire at the end of Revelation. Hell is considered the abode of the dead. When somebody would pass away in Old Testament times, that was a place where they would stay. Everybody remembers about Lazarus, right? Lazarus dies. Rich man didn't give him any food. Or sorry, he was the rich man who didn't give the beggar any food. And there was a chasm that was between them. It's because they're showing you what hell looks like. Now, a lot of people say, well, Jesus was just kind of telling a story. Why would Jesus tell a story about lies? It makes no sense to me. But there's a chasm that separated them. Because Jesus hadn't resurrected yet, there was no entrance for them to go into heaven yet. So they couldn't be taken up with him. He's got work to do now. But he shows that there's a separation going on there. And the bottom part of that, where there's torment, where if he would just put his finger in some water and touch my tongue, can you imagine feeling that parched? That you want somebody to take their finger, which they probably didn't sanitize, and get a drop of water and touch your tongue with it to quench your thirst. That's pretty bad. He's describing the underworld. He's describing hell, Hades. So because of all of this, Basham began to be associated, this area, with the underworld, with hell, with Hades. This region had chief ancestors and ancient kings who were deified. They were always about uplifting those who had passed away, ancestor worship, and if you let ancestor worship go long enough you end up with legends and when you end up with legends you end up with deities and nobody loves to hang, to, to hang out at a seance where you're trying to conjure up your dead dog and actually answer you than demons do this is the stuff they thrive off of because they love to deceive people to keep them blind from seeing the one true God that's Satan's mode so in this region later on Bashan ran by Og, who's a Rephaim, who's a giant, had all this connection with the Nephilim. In fact, Jewish theology holds that this area right here, Mount Hermon, now this isn't biblical, it's just what the Jews have in their ancient theology. Before the events of Genesis 6 took place, they believe that this is where the sons of God who are mentioned in Genesis 6 met in order to concoct this idea to infiltrate the gene pool where the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful and they started having children and these children became the Nephilim, which were giants. They were distorting the gene pool because there had been a promise that was given. PJ, if you wouldn't mind, Genesis chapter 3, 15. Let's remember what this is. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I told you to take notes, man. It's heavy. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I should have it in the queue there. We know this one, right? The first gospel, I think is what it's called. And I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. A death blow, crushing. And you shall bruise him on the heel, what took place at the cross. The promise of Messiah is coming through a seed. Satan wants to do everything he can to stop it. So he decides to get involved in genetics in order to keep the Messiah from coming to kill him. And this is what happens, and this is what brings about the flood. And so they have the angels, yes. I know you guys are in disbelief. Angels had intercourse with people, and they birthed children. I don't understand it. You may not believe it. You're going to go talk to some commentator that says that that's completely wrong? But sons of God is not a questionable term all throughout the Bible. Just let it be consistent. Let the Bible speak. It will tell you how to think about this. And I understand we don't like thinking about supernatural things because it's creepy. Let's be aware and let's be proactive of our position in Christ because the evil one cannot touch us. Moving on here. In this area, everybody remember when Solomon sinned, he married all the ladies and ended up erecting altars at the end of his life and everybody's pagan worship, smartest man to ever live. He's got Israel into pagan worship because of all these foreign marriages he was involved in. Everybody remember that? Whenever the kingdom split in two, the kingdom actually separated. Can we go back to the first map, PJ? The kingdom actually separated, and Benjamin and Judah occupied the lower half, and that became known as Judah, or later on in New Testament times, Judea. And it would be from about right here down, okay? Jerusalem's going to be in the here, Bethlehem, all that good stuff. But everything from here up became known as Israel and the ten tribes migrated up here and they easily went off course because the man who came into power was named Jeroboam. And the first thing that Jeroboam knew that he needed to do in order to keep the two halves from coming back together as a unified whole was he needed to substitute their worship so they wouldn't go back to the temple that Solomon had built because it was down here. So he put an altar right here and he put an altar right here in Dan in order, for, in order for worship to happen so that if you were in this region, you could easily travel here. In this region, you could easily travel here. But he did not want you traveling down here to get back with your friends and start having conversation and God starting to mend fences. No, no. He wanted power. And so he substituted where God said to be worshiped at with false places of worship. Anybody want to guess what he set up there as an altar to worship? Anybody want to guess? Golden calves. Have we heard this story before? And yet he doesn't learn. So he set up a golden calf here at a place called Bethel, means house of God. And he also set one up here at Dan, which is at the very foot of this mountain known as Mount Hermon, where it's believed that the gates of hell sit, the gates of Hades. Now, having done that, later on after it was taken over, 722, the Assyrians come in from over in this region. Looks nice, right? They come over here. They take the northern kingdom because of their profound disobedience and march them all away the to Assyria. They're out of here. Another 150 years later, finally, the southern kingdom gets taken out by Babylon. But when they're removed from that, there's a vacancy. And obviously, people are going to come in and occupy. Later on, you find that Hellenistic influence from the Greeks end up taking over this whole region. And they introduce somebody that you've probably heard of before. His name is Pan. Have you ever heard of Pan before? Maybe you're most familiar with what he looks like from the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Tumnus. He's got the hooves as a feet, right? He's got the horns that come out, plays a little flute. But he's got the body of a guy. And what you find is is pan, name means all, is an all-inclusive god. He's the god of fear or anxiety or dread. He's the god of what we call panic. That's how it got its name. We just came through a pandemic, and it caused pandemonium. And what's amazing is, even though this was Greek-influenced, and you can find many different places in Greece that would still be reverent to Pan, there was a little place, because he likes to be worshipped in caves, in the dark, right, is usually how it goes. And what's interesting is, if you climb Mount Hermon here, you will actually find that there is a cave up here, and people to this day still toss things in that cave as a sacrifice to Pan because he is a false God who has deceived many. Now, what's interesting, PJ, can we go to map number two? We get a better view of Mount Hermon here. And remember what I told you, Dan, is down here at the base of this mountain? You fast forward to New Testament times, let's go to map number three. You find that that area right here is Caesarea Philippi. So when Jesus tells them, I will build my church on this rock, on this rock. And the word means in Greek, a mountain. Huge. And the gates of hell, located about right there, will not prevail against it. Jesus was being more literal than many people are comfortable with. And he was saying that Jesus died for the church and has so dealt with demons and demonic forces in such a way as to where the church is going to be used as the exclamation point spiritually, speaking. Now let me give you some things that are going to back this up so that you can see it. PJ, get ready because we're well. Let's let's finish Psalm sixty-eight. Let's go back to sixty-eight and look at this. Verse sixteen, sorry, fifteen and sixteen. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with? with many peaks at the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Now here's what it's saying. All the other mountains around are jealous of how high Bashan is, but only God is going to be able to take that mountain. He desires to dwell there. He desires to take the place that was commonly known at that time as the gates of hell and tear it down and set up shop in the midst of that to show his, victor- his, his, his victorious nature over demonic forces. It says here, surely, Yahweh will dwell there forever. It will be his, in other words. He's on a conquering mission. Verse 17, the chariots of Elohim are myriads, thousands upon thousands, and then something very interesting happens. Does everybody see the Lord? Do you notice something different about it? Capital L, lowercase O-R-D. It's the word Adonai in the Hebrew, and it means master. And me personally, I think this is talking about Jesus Christ, the Master. Adonai is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high, speaking of Jesus. You have led captive your captives, and you have received gifts among men. Notice here it says received. In our Ephesians 4, it says given. We're going to explain that here in a second. Even among the rebellious also, that Yahweh Elohim may dwell there. In other words... Jesus is going to lead such a victory that it's going to establish an abode for God on top of Mount Bashan, also known as Mount Hermon, also known as the gates of hell in the ancient world. Everybody with me? Okay, nobody's asleep. Good, it's the first Sunday since I've been here. That's great. (laughs) Now, let me give you some other verses if you want to take a look at it. PJ, if we could go to Ephesians 1. We stay in the same book of Ephesians. What we find is, is that Ephesians is all about dealing with spiritual conflict and Jesus' superiority over it. In the middle of Paul offering a prayer, he says, he wants us to know what the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. He brought the strength of his might about in Christ when Christ came. When he raised him from the dead, gives you specific information, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Question. How did Jesus get from resurrection to seated in heaven? What had to happen? What is it? The ascension. The ascension had to take place. Raised from the dead, taught on the kingdom of God for 40 days, and then he ascended into the clouds, and they watched him go up, and the angels were like, stop looking at him, go do stuff. He gets up there, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is very important, because he's giving us the timing of how the power is manifested. Let's go to the next verses here. Verse 21 far above all rule, pay attention, and authority, and power, and dominion. See those? Rule, authority, power, dominion, all rankings of evil beings, all rankings of demons, all rankings of celestial figures. Just like you'd have generals, sergeants, that type of stuff, corporals. That's how they're ranked in the demonic realm. Far above them, for all rule, not only in this age, not only right now where you and I are, but what does it say? Also in what? The age to come. What he's doing now through the cross, burial, resurrection, ascension, and giving these things to the church for supernatural ability is his power manifested speaking into eternity. How about the next part? By the way, I'm going a little long today. Just five minutes. Give me a little bit. Going on, next one. Genesis, sorry, yeah, go to, there it is, sorry, forgive me. He put all things in subjection under his feet, because Jesus has authority over them. And he gave him his head over all things to the... Who's that? You're in Scripture. The manifestation of his power against demons and spiritual forces has been endowed to the church. And as we live in submission to the Spirit, in our place in Christ, we manifest these celestial realities. just blow your mind or what? Now, here's what's amazing is, is we have to stop here. But I don't want to. Let me give you this. PJ, let's go to the quote, please. If you're looking for a couple of books of substance that are really going to stimulate your thinking on the scriptures. I'll show, I'll show you the covers here in just a minute. In the ancient world, the conqueror would parade the captives and demand tribute for himself. Jesus is the conqueror of Psalm 68. And the booty does indeed rightfully belong to him. But booty was also distributed after a conquest. Paul knows that. And he quotes Psalm 68, 18 to make the point that after Jesus conquered his demonic enemies, he distributed the benefits of the conquest to his people, believers. Specifically, those benefits are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. In other words, whenever Jesus drew his emphatic and sovereign line in the sand with his death at the cross, the fact that death could not hold him, and so he is alive once more, the fact that earth would not hold him, and so he ascends to the place of privilege and position at the right hand of the Father, and he is on deck to assume the throne after the tribulation, In the meantime, he's turned around and all the spoils that he gathered from demonic forces, he had taken from them and he's all led them. Can you imagine like demons like, oh, this is going to be bad, right? Into penal servitude for the purpose of turning it around and wanting to distribute to all of us so that we would be effective in this life to do exactly what God has called us to do. The church is an insanely, supernaturally blessed Entity beyond understanding. And the scriptures are so deep with this stuff, we cannot afford to ignore it. But what I'm hoping that you leave here today is understanding of you being here as part of the body matters. There are no second class Christians. Christ has died for you. He has gifts, grace, endowments waiting for you to discover and to utilize within the body of Christ so that we will grow up in unity and love. That's where we're going with this. We're going to pick up with this next week because obviously it's a lot. Let's take a moment to pray. Thank you, Father, that you're doing so much more through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paying for sins, incredible, amazing, mind-blowing. Absolutely beyond our understanding and bubbling over in grace that we could never, never fully grasp. Even when we begin thinking that we're getting somewhere in grace, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. But Father, how much more you desire to do on and on and on in Jesus Christ our Lord. On this rock you will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for being a glorious commander. We thank you for being a glorious Christ our King. Father, I pray that our hearts are waiting for the time when You will ascend the throne and rule and reign in righteousness over this earth. That You will make all things right. God, give us minds to understand this and help us to realize that in our time now, with the gift of the Holy Spirit that has come from Jesus our Lord, we have responsibility to be faithful in this time, to take up these gifts, these endowments that have been given to us and to manifest them for the health of the body. Thank You that You've not left us alone. You've given us the Word of God to instruct us in these things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.